What's up, church? Hey, let's give the Lord a hand. Amen. So uh, this uh, last week, we have uh, been kind of uh, having a jam-packed week. We actually just got back uh, yesterday. We had our Journey Group Leaders Retreat, and for those uh, that were able to make it, we uh, just really had a great time, and uh, not only a great time uh, just refreshing uh, really ourselves, but rekindling just our love for Jesus, but also just having community with one another and, and encouraging one another and preparing for this fall. And uh, it was just a really good thing. Thursday night, we had our prayer night and uh, just we're praying about things that are going to be taking place this fall and are, are just really encouraged by what God is doing. And then on Wednesday, we uh, had our convocation here in Wills Point uh, community and served uh, over 400 plus uh, staff in, in Wills Point ISD and had a great time with them. And so it's been a really a full week, but it's also just reminded me of what it is that we do here at Stone Point and really what we're about. And uh, it was you know, just an opportunity really for us in the last week to, uh, to, to remind ourselves that what, what's happening in this community and in the Edgewood community is really a God thing. And not only is it a God thing, but that we should just continue to re- rely and trust in Him. And I think so easily... Uh, we begin to rely and trust on ourselves, our own intellect, our own uh, ability to do things. And so uh, I just want to encourage you that as we dive in today, that we would not trust in our own wisdom or intellect, but that we would allow God to speak to our hearts and that we would allow uh, His Spirit uh, not only to entrust Himself to us, but ultimately to give us wisdom and grace and guidance as we walk through this text. Because there really is some great content here and some things that will help us um, kind of talk through some things that I think are happening at hand right now within our own nation and our culture. So if you would pray with me, then we're going to dive in uh, to 1 Peter chapter 4. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the the pleasure of being here this morning. Thank you, God, for all of those who have entrusted their time uh, to your care here. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, first-time guests, Lord, would be treated well, that they would know that this is a place that Uh, is excited about seeing you change lives. And Father, I pray that you would remind us here what it looks like to love you and serve you and to be faithful to you. Uh, We thank you, God, for your word, and we pray, God, that you would use it to strengthen our backbone. Lord, for some of us, I pray, God, that you uh, would just remind us of the fact that you never leave nor forsake us. Lord, for others of us, I pray, God, that it would uh, be something new for us and that you would challenge some of our assumptions or maybe even some of our own thoughts. We love you and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, we see that Christ suffered. And we notice that Peter says something that is not unique, uh, but he, he reminds us that, that Christ suffered and he did so as the righteous one for the unrighteous. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he's going to go on and he's going to say basically this, that Christ, when he gave himself on the cross, he did something significant for you and I. He took a sinner like me, a sinner like you, and he gave us an opportunity to become a part of the righteous work of God. At the same time, when Jesus declared, it is finished, and he committed his spirit to the Lord, he, in a sense, entrusted himself to God and said, I can become now a picture of unrighteousness for, what, them, to, to take them and 
place their unrighteousness on my shoulders. And so it is the picture of 1 Corinthians 21, 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And so what Peter is doing in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's reminding us of that, that Jesus suffered, and because he did so, we should take notice. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you look at verse 1, it then says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what he's saying is, he goes, because of what you've read about Christ, because Christ died once and for all for you, because he took on your unrighteousness and in turn placed his righteousness on you to declare you a saint or a child of God, he goes, because that, since therefore Christ did that for you, you should arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then he goes on, he goes, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So the idea here is a fundamental picture of what Peter is trying to tell us in the Christian faith. And then he's going to go on and he's going to kind of add to it in verse 2. And look at it. It says, So I to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so if you have a, like a highlighter or you have a pen or something like that, like you should just like circle all of verse 1 and 2. You should underline it. You should asterisk. You could do everything you wanted to because this is the theme of this entire chapter. And it certainly is the theme in the next 11 verses. And here's what he's saying. He is saying that because Christ died for you, you need to decide whether or not it's worth living for. And if in turn, Jesus is worth living for, then it must be worth dying for. That's the picture. Now let me read it to you one more time, just so you understand. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So if Christ is worth living for, he must be worth dying for. Now let me explain something to you, though. He does something unique here. He says, if indeed you think that Christ is worth living for, And then in turn, worth dying for. Like you're going to die to yourself. You're going to die to your own sin, your own agenda. Then in fact, you're going to see something radical transformed in your life. And here's why. Because a person who would declare in front of a multitude of people that Jesus is worth dying for has already done something in their walk with Jesus that everyone else has noticed. And the question is, is what is that? And here it is. They've stopped sinning so much. Y'all with me? So like, here's what's happening in, in like, just in the culture, okay? Like in our culture, it's, it's okay to love God and it's okay to say, I'm a Christian. It's okay to have a bumper sticker on your car. But where it gets really confusing in our culture is people who would say, oh, I love God and I love Jesus and I'm so grateful that I'm going to heaven and then nothing really changes in our lifestyle. There's no real act of repentance. There's no real act of sanctification taking place in our life, meaning that we're growing into Christ's likeness. And what Peter is saying, he goes, if, if you believe that the gospel is worth dying for, then why is it that you keep doing the same things that you've always done? But under the guise of doing the same things you've always done, the only thing that makes it look a little better is that now you say, I love Jesus. And what Peter is saying, he goes, that's inconsistent. When you find something worth dying for, it changes everything about you. Matter of fact, I would imagine in this room, there are some war veterans. And what's interesting is 
when I meet military guys, I think all of us in this room, and I would say most military guys in their flesh and, and without like a persona would say, I, I don't want to die on foreign soil. Like I, that's not something that you look forward to. It's not something that you hope for. But the one thing about a soldier, once they've gone through all of their basics and all of their training and they have really honed in on a specific task, they go to foreign soil willingly. And if it costs them their life, they believe in the cause so much that they're willing to be under, buried on foreign soil and ultimately never recognized again. And the reason they do that is because of their country and because of their love for what they believe in. And, and their beliefs are some solid beliefs. And, and that is what, that there's dignity of man, that there is equality for all people, that there's a pursuit of happiness, that there is liberty. And those are things that most men that put on a, a Navy suit or an Army suit or a SEAL suit, whatever it is, when they arm up, they say, I'm willing to die for it. Basically, Peter's going, that should be the same for us as Christians. Like, it, it shouldn't be any different. If you believe so much in the cause of the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, then you ought to be willing to die for it. And then we go, well, I am. I am. I am. And what Peter says is, he goes, quit telling me that you're willing to die for it until you die to your sin first. Understand? So what he's saying is, he goes, yeah, everybody can say that I don't, I don't like my sin. And I think that's probably true for most of us. Like, if you're a Christian, like, the thought of our sin should, in a sense, not settle well with us. And I can remember times in my life where I would do something almost under the guise of, like, God, I know you're going to forgive me. And what's incredible is, is how shallow my faith was then. I mean, I was probably 16 or 18 or sometimes 19 years old, but my thought was, God, you're great. So I'm going to go ahead and do this. And it's not until later in my life in the sanctification process that I go, that was utter foolishness. Not only is it utter foolishness, but it's not a picture of who God wants me to be at all. There's got to be a point where a Christian who says the gospel's worth dying for quits being a dog that returns to his vomit. There's got to be a point where you no longer are comfortable with the sin patterns that you have in your life. And that's what Peter is trying to say. And then he's going to take it a little further. So basically what he's saying is, is if you have found something worth living for, it must be worth dying for. And if it is the cause of Christ, then the first thing that's going to change is your sin patterns. And once your sin patterns change and you pursue God in holiness, then you can know that the only aim in your life is to please him the perfect, the holy one. Just as God said, as I am holy, you should be holy. Like that becomes our charge. And that's all our greatest goal is. It's not to please everybody. It's just to be holy as Christ desires us to be more like him. And then verse three says, for the time that is the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, which is living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So what he's going is, is he's going, look, what happens to be confusing oftentimes within the context of here is you've got people who are trusting in Jesus, they're running for their lives, and he says, and the ones who are running for their lives and they believe the gospel's worth living for have already changed the way they do things. But he goes, what's confusing is when you claim to be a Christian and yet you look like all the Gentiles do. And he begins to make a comparison to the people in that culture around them. And I'll tell you, the Gentile culture is not much different than our culture. 
okay? Like you, you can find any of these things right here that you listed in our area last night. I mean, it, it, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Like you and I can find any sin that we want to be a part of right here in our culture. It's just as easy to find as it was in the culture back then. And so the deal is, he says, if you are pursuing Christ, then the question you got to ask yourself is, do I look like Christ or do I look more like the Gentile culture in which I live in? Or in this case, you could ask yourself, God, do I look more like you or do I look more like an American? Wow. What a question. And then it poses a great question to a lot of us who at some point have been a patriot. And I'm not against patriotism. But at some point, we got to realize that Christ and the pursuit of his holiness outweighs patriotism. And the question that you got to ask yourself then too is, which am I going to identify with more? Am I going to identify with Christ's likeness or am I going to identify more with my American culture? Or, hey, for any culture at that matter, any history in which you embrace most, because that's the problem in our culture right now. We are embracing parts of our culture, regardless of what ethnicity we are or where we come from, that suit our fancy in times when we need it most. And Christ says, no, no, no. If you pursue me, if you are suffering with me, then you've died to yourself, your own agenda, your own sin, and you don't look like the Gentiles look. Now, what's interesting is Peter's not addressing a new concept here within the church. He's not addressing something that you and I haven't read before. Matter of fact, if you read your Bibles at all, you should know that this is not new. Like you, you don't go to church expecting your pastor to say, hey, go out and sin more, right? Like, I mean, nobody came in here like, here's what I get all that, man, pastor, man, you really stepped on my toes. Like, isn't that, is it really me stepping on your toes? I mean, think about it for just a second. Think about some of the foolish things we say, like, Pastor, you really got me on that one. No, did I really? All I'm telling you is what's consistent time and time and time again and what I read in the Word. It's not like I had a profound thought this week. It wasn't like I was in my study and, oh, man, I'm gonna got, I've got something new to teach you. I don't have anything new. That's oftentimes why I get discouraged. I'm like, Lord, just give me something new. Give me a fresh word. Like, Brandon, I don't have a fresh word. Just give him the word. Look at Ephesians 5. I mean, just, I just want to read it to you. I'm not going to expound on it. I just want you to read on it because it seems pretty consistent. Verses 1 through 11. It's funny. It's 1 through 11. Here we go. Therefore, be imitators of God's beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. That almost sums it up in two verses. Then look at it, it goes on. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covenants must not be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of the place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. And that no one deceive you with empty words, for because of the things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't be uh, partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, and now you're the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitfulness works of darkness, but instead, what? Try to expose them. Like, that's it. I can't make it more clear to you than that. Like, that is the goal. Like, live for Christ, avoid sin, work to love and live for him. It's the same thing that you see in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
It's the same thing that you see in 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 1. It's the same thing that you see in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You see it again in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. You see it in Psalm 51 as David says, Lord, create in me a pure heart. Lord, if there be any, anything in me that's unanxious or remove that God, fill for me. Lord, return to me the joy of your salvation. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. It's in Romans chapter 6. In John chapter 15. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4. Do you get this? The entire chapter of Colossians chapter 3, it identifies this. Ephesians chapter 2, being alive in Christ. Like, do you see the consistent theme of our Bible? Is if Christ is worth living for, he must be worth dying for. If he's worth dying for, die to your sin first. Quit holding up banners about how you love Jesus and you've not even died to your sin. Understand? That's the picture. That's what he's trying to help us see. And then he goes on, and look at uh, verse 5 with me, or verse 4, I'm sorry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery. So here's what you see. So if this is worth living for, it's worth dying for. While you do it, don't look at the Gentiles, but understand that when you don't do the things the Gentile do, they are going to be surprised. Now you would think that's countercultural, but it's not. Look at it. With respect to, and that's speaking of Christ-likeness, like when respect to living for God, living in Christ-likeness, they are surprised. Who are surprised? Your friends, the Gentiles, the people you used to hang out with. Like if you want to make this specific to you, the, the people that you used to call your buddies are now surprised when you don't do the same things they do, which are a flood of dissipation or debauchery. Like if you look around and you go, man, I don't have many friends that I used to have. It probably is an indication that you've either grown or that some reason they've disowned you, okay? And it probably is both because what's happening is, is that there becomes a point in which when you live for Christ and you die to your own gain, when you live for him and you're pursuing holiness, that you look up and you realize that not everyone around you is on that same pursuit, I mean, think about it. You have some close friends. For some of you in here, you probably just celebrated 10 years out of high school. And you look back over 10 years out of high school and you go, man, I don't seem to have near as many of those friends with me anymore. And part of of the reason why is because you're on a different pursuit than they are. But the question is this. When you live for Christ and you pursue holiness, what does that do to the Gentile who's partaking in all the things you see there in verse 3? Lawless idolatry. When you look at someone pursuing passions and sensuality, drunkenness and the like, like what does it do to them? Here's what it does. It convicts them. It convicts them. When you live a life that's holy and you hang around people who are living a pursuit of unholiness, there's a point in which it's like oil and water. The two don't mix. They don't mingle. Now, you may not say anything, you may not do anything, but the bottom line is there comes a point where they don't want to be around you. And the reason why is because when you're around them, without you even knowing it, you judge them. You're like, I don't judge them. And I'm like, exactly, you don't. But they sense that. And here's why. Because there's, there's something to be said of holiness within the context of sin. Like people notice it. People notice when you walk in a room and you don't speak the way they speak. 
They notice it when you don't partake of the things they partake of. And that's what Peter's trying to say. He goes, people ought to notice the difference. It's interesting. I had a guy uh, not too long ago that he, he, he said something in respect to this. And he goes, hey, Brandon, I, I recently met a guy that doesn't like you. And I'm like, do what? <laughs> now, I think it probably shocked you as much as it shocked me, you know? I'm like, everybody likes me. What are you talking about, man? I'm like, and he goes, no, this dude does not like you. And I'm like, okay, seriously, like, what did I, like, what did I do? Did I say something in a message that he took the wrong way? Like, and he's like, no. Um, he goes, he doesn't like you. And he goes, but this goes like years back. And I'm like, years back, like, like five or seven or eight or nine. I'm like, I mean, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, and then he does what a classic friend does. Do you understand? Well, I'm not going to tell you who it is. And I'm like, dude, I'm about to hit you in the face in the name of brotherly love and in the name of Jesus. Don't you, doesn't it drive you crazy when people do that? Like, hey, this person really doesn't like you. Like, well, what did I do? Who is it? Oh, I can't tell you. I'm like, yeah, it's probably you. No. So finally I drag it out of him. I'm like, dude, you cannot do that. Like, that's really not cool. And uh, he's like, well, it's a guy from high school. And I'm like, high school? I've been out of high school for like 20 years, dude. High school? Like, and then, of course, I'm like, that's so high school, you know? <laughs> and he goes, he doesn't like you because you never participated in what he participated in. I'm like, what? And he goes, no, I'm being serious. He's always had something out for you. I invited him to church recently, and he said, I'm not going to his church because I don't like him. And I don't like him because he stands for things I don't stand for. And it, it's fitting for verse 4 because <clears throat> if you look at verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and then they malign you. What you'll notice is, is when you pursue Christ and his holiness, you'll notice that there's people who are saying things malicious about you. You'll notice that as they don't align, and it seems to be more of a clash of oil and water, that they're going to begin to throw oil on you and hope it sticks. They're going to do everything they can in their power to do something. And here's why. Listen, it's not about you. That's what I'm learning. It's not about you. It's about justifying what it is they're doing. Think about that for just a second. That's a profound thought. When somebody maligns you, it's not about you. It's to help them feel better about who they are and about what it is they're not accomplishing that they should be. And in a sense, it is a, a guilt that has overcome them through the power of the Spirit when you live in holiness because holiness clearly divides itself from darkness right? And so that's the picture. And so they malign you. But here's the deal. If you go, man, I don't like people maligning you, so I'm going to continue to live the way I want to live because I don't want anybody talking bad about it. That's a really bad idea. And here's why. Because verse 5 and 6 tell you what happens, and it's a future hope for all of us who would die for Christ. Like if you live for Christ, you die for Christ, there's a future hope. And here it is. In verse 5, those who malign you will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is a day in which there will be no more obscurities. 
There is a day which everything will be super crystal clear. And it's not going to be just clear for the judge. It's going to be, it's going to be clear for the one who's being judged. It's going to be very clear to us one day that we stand before God and we see our sin directly in front of him and his holiness. And yet we also see at the same time, those of us who have pursued Christ and his glory, we see our sin blotted out before us and him say, well done, thy good and faithful service. And it has really nothing to do with you, but everything to do with his son, Jesus. At the same time, there are going to be others who have taken their time to malign you and live in their sin and be like a dog returning to his vomit over and over and over and over again. And they're going to stand before the righteous judge. And in that moment, they're going to recognize his holiness and they're going to see their sin. And in that moment, they're going to long to have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. And in that moment, they're going to begin to see the very things they used to love as detestable, yet it will be too late. And so ju the judge, the righteous one says, I will make all things right in the last day. Don't fear someone who will harm your body. Don't fear someone that will cause you to suffer because there will be a day in which even though your body returns to the dust, you and your soul won't. I will make you alive with me. And then he says that in verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh and the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. And what he does is he just says, there's going to be a day in which I judge those who have done evil. And he goes, I'm going to reward those who have done right. And I'm going to take them, though their bodies are dead, and though they've been judged in the flesh, meaning their bodies went back to the earth, just as you come from dust, as dust your body will return, he goes, I'm going to make them alive in the spirit. And you can declare this, Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? The reason why is because we know that Christ is going to make us alive in the spirit. He did it for Old Testament saints. He did it for Christian martyrs in the early days of the church. That's what Peter's writing about. He is saying, you are on your you're running for your life, but as you run, know that this cause is worth dying for. Got it? This is the literal text. He going, you're running for your lives. You're living in fear. People hate you. They're maligning you. They're out to get you. They're going to continue it. Don't be surprised. They're going to eventually catch up with you when they kill your physical body. Don't worry. God will judge them. He'll avenge you. And more than that, you have an eternal home. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow or suffering for the old order of things will pass away. And he goes, just hold on. Stay steadfast. Don't be easily moved. Understand? God is for us, who can be against us? What an encouragement, amen? And then he takes a light, like just a little quick shift, and I'm gonna wrap it up rather quickly for us, but he says, the end of things is at hand. Now, that's a question that you have to ask yourself because I think if you can answer this question right here, then it really changes everything in which you believe about this chapter, okay? So think about it for a second. Is the world really about to come to an end? You gotta answer that. Now, Peter thought it was, and that was 2,000 years ago. So obviously his estimates were off just a touch. But the deal is, is this, he lived with expectancy. Why? Because Jesus says in John chapter 14, if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back and receive it unto myself. And so now we're beginning to have a fundamental theological issue in which we have to talk about. Is Jesus real? If he died on the cross, he committed the spirit to the Lord and in in fact, secured and sealed your salvation, which we're all here celebrating, then is he coming back for me? And if he is coming back for me, am I going to have to wait another 2,000 years or 
could it potentially be faster? And if it is faster, then am I ready? And so Peter says, I think you should live with the expectation that it's happening soon. And I happen to believe that if you look around our culture, you sense some of the things that are happening that I don't feel like I've ever felt in our nation. The turbulence, some of the times. I think that the time is near. Now, I'm not going to begin to speculate on a, 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 a date. I would be a heretic if I did that. But I want to live with expectancy. I want to be ready. And all he's saying there in verse 7 is if the things of hand, or if all the things are, are in life are at hand, like Christ is coming back, then you should be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And all he's doing is reiterating. Now, he's saying this. Think about it real quickly. Now, I want you to think about this. If Jesus comes back today, are you ready? If he comes back next week and you're like, well, quit asking me a question that's not going to happen. It could. But I'm asking because this is not a fundamental question is it if he comes back right now. Because listen, here's what happens in parenting, right? Your kids are going to be obedient if your eyes are always on them. But the moment I turn my back, guess what? They become, hold on, hold on. I know it's, maybe it doesn't happen in your house like it does mine. <laughs> If I'm watching my kids, they're all like, oh, obedient, right? And everybody's like, oh, they look so good, right? Yeah, yeah. And I turn my back, then like it, chaos breaks loose, right? See, that's the way we're living. If you knew that Christ was coming back right now or perhaps later, like you would worship like you've never worshiped. You would like begin to block out things like that you've been doing. You would change things quickly, wouldn't you? You would adjust because that's what we do. I mean, think about it. If there's, a, if there's an audit coming to your, your company, guess what? You do. You change some things, don't you? Like you pay attention to the, some of the details. Agree? If your boss is going to be in the classroom, you give your best, don't you? You spend more time on that lesson than you did any other lesson of the year. Because that's what we do. So listen, if Christ is coming, He's saying, be ready and quit preparing yourself for just the one day of his arrival, but live with expectation. And you do that by being self-controlled and sober-minded. And all he's saying is this, you do that by quit looking like a Gentile, quit looking like an American, quit looking like everybody else, identify with Christ. And if it's worth living for, then it's worth dying for. So do that consistently over and over and over and over again. Got it? Pretty easy lesson to learn, isn't it? In verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, here's what he says. He goes, if you love Christ and Christ is sufficient for you and you now exemplify self-control and a sober mind and you are prayerful about all things, then you will love other people. It's a byproduct. And your love will cover a multitude of sin. Your, your love will make a difference in our, in our culture. Now, I want to read this. I wrote it, and I tried to be careful about how I wrote it so I didn't somehow say it off. But I want you to think about what's happening right now um, in our nation. And I want you to just think about what's happening even within this very room. See, Christians should be the picture of love and harmony in our world. Do you agree? Did you all hear that? Christians should be the picture of love and harmony. But some people in this room don't like each other. And instead of seeking to abide in the Spirit, we have a heightened sense of awareness and conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Instead of having that, 
we chalk it up to a problem that we have from our past. Maybe some sort of programmed problem, the very fabric of our being that keeps us from loving people. Maybe that remind us of something that happened from our past. Maybe a prejudice that we were taught by our parents. Maybe something that we hate because of a color or because of a certain background or ethnicity or a social status. See, the, the struggle that I have in relation to what's happening in our culture and our nation is that how many people guise themselves under a hate group but would identify themselves as Christians at the same time. And it's incongruous. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. You cannot hate other people regardless of who they are or where they come from and claim to love Jesus. Like, you can't do it. Like, you should stand and clap on that one. Like, you cannot do it. And that is the problem. That's the division right now that we have. Is that we think that based off of the programming, the DNA, the fabric of our being that we've been taught by either our ancestors or by our parents, that we can somehow love Jesus and hate one portion of the public. Struggle to love the one person that seems to ask a lot from us. And Jesus says, no, it can't happen. Just as I have loved you, you should love one another. Think about that. Wayne Gruden says this, where love abounds in fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. Think about that. Where love abounds, you forget a lot of things, don't you? Think about the offenses that you just kind of let go. But when, when hatred is there, like you're looking for every false word. You're looking for someone to slip up. You're looking for someone to fall, and Satan loves it all. You're with me? And then he says, now show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I'm going to wrap it up here, okay? But I want, I want to be really honest with you, okay? Show hospitality with one another without grumbling. Now, you only show hospitality to people that you love, okay? We don't show hospitality well to strangers when they walk into our doors if we don't relate to them. We just don't. Maybe one of those, those hardwired things in, in the fabric of our being, somebody walks in and we're like, oh, them? And it could be a subcategory. It may not be a specific person that you don't like because they said something malicious about you in, in our town or in our county or whatever. Like it could just be something that's hardwired into you and you're like, uh. Oh. And you may not say it, but you what? Mutter it. Matter of fact, Show hospitality to one another without, do you see the word? Grumbling. And the word grumbling there literally means to mutter quietly. It's almost like you just say it to yourself. Now, now let me explain something, the reason that I struggle with hospitality. Now, hospitality at the Bactyl House means we got to kind of clean up everything before people come over, right? Anybody struggle with that? Okay. If you're OCD in here, you got it, okay? Some of you are CDO, okay, which means OCD in order, right? CDO, got it? Yes? Some of you get it in a minute. But look, here's the struggle. It's like when somebody's coming over to your house, and particularly if you're a journey group leader, this is a real struggle. You're like, I gotta, we got to clean. 
And we got to cling to at least some semblance that our house is recognizable. Like it makes us not look disheveled and unorganized and like we just don't care about all the things that God's entrusted to our care. And so we clean. We put things in order. And at our house, it means that we put everything up. It means we throw all the kids' you know, toys into one main closet, right? And you're like... Throw it all in there. And then it means that we sweep and we mop and we wipe down our tables and we wipe down our chairs and we do all of these things. We even clean the black, uh, the back glass, the window with all of our kids' handprints and all the animal prints on the outside. And we do all of these things. And then you start thinking about it. Like you do all this and then you hear this knock on the door when you're actually frantically in the middle of all this and your first guest has arrived. And you're like, Oh my gosh, Kelly, they're 15 minutes early. What are they doing here? You ever done that? I do it all the time. And then they, like, they come in and they're like, hey, what's up, guys? And we're like, hey, what's up? We're just so glad. Like, Kelly, meanwhile, is in our room wrapping the vacuum cleaner cord around while I greet the guest. And they come in. I'm like, hey, what's up? And they come in and, and they, they enjoy themselves. And we have good conversation and we laugh a lot. And then about 11 o'clock, they go, you know what, we're tired. And we're like, we are too. We're so grateful you, you come. And I'll often repeat the line, hey, we don't care where you go. You just can't stay here, okay? So, <laughs> and, and so they're, they're commissioned to go. And then you look around, right? And you're like, oh, my goodness. Why did we sweep and mop? All those toys, it looks like they've doubled or tripled. They're scattered all throughout the house. And then you're like, and they didn't pick up any of their plates. And not only that, they left that cup right there, oh, right there on that antique piece, and that's not coming up. And then they leave, and you're like, oh, I'll see you later. And then you get back to the house, and you close the door, and you're like, oh, that was such a good visit. Right? You're like, oh, man. And I look at Kelly, and I go, hey, did you get it like a, a before pick? She's like, oh, I'm not good at that. I said, well, that's a shame because we're not going to see our house look like it did four hours ago in a long time. Like, you put all this effort. Then you say something that you wish you didn't say, and you mutter it so your kids wouldn't hear it. You go, man, that was more trouble than I think it might have been worth. Oh, I wish they might, wouldn't have come over now. And it wasn't because... You didn't enjoy it. It's because you struggle to serve other people. You're selfish. I'm selfish at the core. And Jesus is saying, if you claim to love me, and you claim to love other people, then you got to show hospitality. And not only that, you, you got to quit living as a Christian under the guise of showing hospitality when every single act you do either has to be recognized or you grumble about it under your breath. And that, my friends, is the American church. All in one thing. You either sin and you love it, you serve and you complain about it, or you have to be recognized for everything you do. And I'll tell you, that's me too. But that's not who Christ desires us to be from the inside out. Here's what he desires. Verse 10, but you should use your gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. 
Whoever speaks, if you have been charged to speak for the things of God, speak with the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, do that. Why? In order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's why we say, hey, somebody's got to tell me the truth occasionally. Step on my toes. Remind me of what the scriptures say. Because, quite frankly, we'll lose track pretty easily. And we'll make it more about us than the one who deserves glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? So let me pray for us. And I want you to go have a great week of worship. And may God truly speak to our hearts on these issues. God, we love you. We thank you for today. God, help us to love one another. God, I pray that Satan would know no longer have any chains or bounds on us. May he not have any perverse delight because of things that happen in our church. God, would you help us to love one another earnestly? God, may we realize that our grumbling and our complaining do not honor you, but they are a sign of displeasure, not only with what you're doing in our lives, but also really what we believe about the goodness of God in our lives. God, if we have received the gift from you through the power of the Holy Spirit, may we use it to serve one another. May we be good stewards of your grace. God, may we love one another and may we live as if all things are coming to an end soon. Help us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Help us to go and make a difference for the cause of your sake. May you be glorified forever and ever. Amen.